When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, Ray here. Just uh, two production notes before we get started. One, um, there are two occasions in this episode where I use curse words. No, it's not me changing the format of the show, but they're indirect quotes, um, and so I wanted to give you a warning. I know from emails that some parents listen to this in the car on their way to work or driving their kids to school. And two, at the end of this is a very important announcement, at least to me, probably the most important announcement I've made. So please make sure to listen to that at the end. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 192, Hitler's Reaction to Lendlease and FDR's Third Term. Last time, in the late summer of 1940, President Roosevelt was busy juggling many challenges at the same time. The election was fast approaching. The race with Wendell Wilkie was now in a dead heat. American naval personnel had been bombed by the Japanese near Nanjing. In response, some resources had to be denied to the Japanese Empire, with a threat of more to come. Japan responded by invading French Indochina to possibly gain access to Dutch oil, should American crude be cut. FDR countered by sending the Pacific Fleet, normally stationed in San Diego, to Pearl. And, in an effort to further back the Allies, the White House had promised all aid short of war. This, as it was time to see if the American public would back FDR with an unprecedented third term, who seemed to be bringing the country closer to getting into the war. The United States was nervous, edgy, and had many reasons for this. Aid to Britain was fine, as long as That's all it was. But would the Axis not respond to this material aid, to their last remaining major adversary? November 5th, 1940, election night, finally came. FDR was at his home in Hyde Park and firmly believed that, at the moment, he had done all he could for Churchill and his countrymen. Also that there was a real chance that he would lose his office before the night was over. Yet, by the time all was said and done, with Wilkie's business interests on Wall Street and the Republicans were still tied to the Great Depression and that most Americans would decide it was best to stay the course, FDR won easily enough. However, it was his narrowest victory. But Ted Roosevelt Jr. of the Oyster Bay Roosevelts believed, or hoped, that there would be a silver lining in this cloudy defeat. He wrote, Well, the election is over, but there is now in the United States a convinced and active minority group which knows what it is about and knows it is fighting. Which was true enough. 
FDR could feel the anti-war movement around him solidifying, and now more determined than ever. But their fear did not change the map in his office. The Nazis were still a threat to peace. Japanese forces were still raging in China and Southeast Asia. As for the future, in Washington and throughout America, there was always the next election. And the opposition now had a face and voice. That of Charles Lindbergh, who at the age of 27 was the first person to fly solo from New York to Paris. For this, he received the nation's highest military decoration, the Medal of Honor. After the results came in, Lindbergh said, Democracy, as we have known it, is a thing of the past. What's more, as a supporter of Hitler's Germany, Lindbergh would go on to verbalize that maybe the political system itself had let them down, that the universal franchise was not in the best interest of America. As such, it was time to disenfranchise the blacks, and that what was wrong with the country were the Jews, Anglophiles, and Wall Street bankers. Hitler had certainly removed similar obstacles to his power when he became chancellor. FDR, still stinging, despite his victory, after Lindbergh's hundreds or possibly thousands of speeches, told Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, Jr., If I should die tomorrow, I want you to know this. I am absolutely convinced that Lindbergh is a Nazi. But battle had been joined, and Franklin had won. Yet, as the German embassies charged the affairs Thompson cabled to Berlin, the president had assured the American people that he would not lead them into the war, and he intended to keep his word, which was all Hitler needed. For now. Hello everyone, Ray here. Like so many of you, I'm always looking for new ways to learn. And that's why I'm enjoying the Great Courses Plus video learning service. And I want you to check it out too. This is unlimited access to a large library of engaging video lectures presented by award-winning experts in so many different topics. World and American history, science, religion, even how to play chess or take better photos. Stream lectures from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, or, as I do, download the videos and watch them offline. I want to recommend to you a course I've been watching, History's Greatest Military Blunders. Military history often highlights successes, but there's so much that can be learned from studying failure, particularly when it's unexpected, like Operation Market Garden. The Allies made numerous errors in this mission, from underestimating the Germans' resistance, to ignoring important intelligence, to making unrealistic timetables. Now, I've watched over a dozen videos so far, but this one, about Operation Market Garden, has been my favorite. The idea was to end the war by Christmas of 1944, and in that haste, numerous mistakes were made by the Allies. What follows is nothing short of tragic. The Allies would go on to suffer 17,000 casualties, and the Germans, far from being beaten, would launch an offensive that has become known as the Battle of the Bulge. So, right now, sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and as one of my listeners, you can watch this and other of the courses free for one month. But you need to go to my special URL 
thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldwar. Start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldwar. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldwar. However, as FDR had won his third term, he now had time to contemplate helping the British even more. Ideas were brought to him. Secretary Morgenthau didn't want to waste any more time, and so proposed simply making a gift of their armaments to London. But that was legally dicey. FDR countered with, in a vague way, why not loan what we have to the British? They could return it later, when it was no longer needed. This general idea would be floated to the press upon returning from a sea vacation in December of 1940. The president said, from a selfish point of view of American defense, we should do everything to help the British Empire to defend itself, and that the idea of money issues during war was nonsense. Furthermore, many people had counted the British out during the last World War, and they had still fought on for years. No, Britain would hang in there, and it was up to America to aid her, if for no other reason than to keep the fighting limited to Europe and the water around it. Then came the famous length of hose analogy. FDR painted a picture that was easy to imagine, yet hard to argue against. Suppose my neighbor's house catches fire, and I have a length of garden hose. It wouldn't be right to ask the desperate man to pay for the hose, but that the owner would give it over freely— Of course, FDR continued, I want my garden hose back after the fire is over, and in good condition. If not, then the borrower should replace it in a timely manner. This concept would become known as Lend-Lease, which would pass Congress, allowing the U.S. government to loan various war materials to those fighting fascism. Not two weeks later, the president followed up this folksy story, with his first fireside chat in six months from the White House. Here he focused on what was happening outside of his own country and drew in the people with his dramatic telling. Also that, in order to keep America safe, we must be the great arsenal of democracy. FDR's readying his country for a more active part in the war went hand-in-hand with accruing more power to make that an actuality. In December of 1940, he asked Congress to give him the power to grant London what he deemed necessary to assist them. Ships, aircraft, trucks, and munitions. And as each deal would not be limited to what the British could pay back, or when they could pay it back, the President was inching ever closer to what would become Lend-Lease. Soon after this request, FDR, during his State of the Union address, informed the citizens that the time had come for America to switch from producing implements of peace to implements of war. But the reason for doing so was so that the U.S. government could protect its own people and the four essential human freedoms. The freedom of expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear of armed aggression. Obviously, these were the exact opposite of what Nazi Germany was built on, And if America wanted to retain these freedoms, it seemed, they would have to fight for them.
of course, the isolationists fought back, and their reasoning was straightforward. It was cruel of the current administration to urge Britain to fight to the death, because if they lost, that was it for the last vestige of freedom in Europe. But if Britain worked out a peaceful resolution with Hitler, then both sides could get on with things, and the war would be over. America's sons would be safe. Simplistic, but it struck an emotional tone that resonated with many. But as we have seen covered previously, Lend-Lease would go through Congress and be signed into law on March 11, 1941. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Yet the saving grace that was to be Lend-Lease almost wasn't. Lend-Lease was to aid Britain materially, but what if that material never made it across the Atlantic? In early and mid-1941, Nazi Germany was winning the Battle of the Atlantic. In the first six months of 41, some 756 merchant ships were sunk. Another 1,450 were damaged. If this continued by year's end, that would mean 7 million tons of lost shipping, something that Lend-Lease could not hope to make good. Clearly, it was time for something different, and that was the convoy system, which would eventually be instituted. But as for the American president, he had gone as far as he dared. He may have already overreached. For clearly the people were convinced that aiding the British would be enough. But that was not FDR's thinking. He knew that Britain, even with American aid, could not defeat the Axis alone. America would have to eventually get into the war, if for no other reason than to secure American markets overseas. However, he would not fire the first shot. That had to come from Germany. And make no mistake, he would fire back then. But there was no way the country would support him taking the war to the Germans. The question was how to get them to attack first. Now that Lend-Lease was passed, it was time to organize the thing and get supplies to the UK quick smart. And for this, FDR relied on his usual casual 
unofficial way of doing things. Harry Hopkins, FDR's trusted personal assistant and the former head of the WPA, or Works Progress Administration, which employed 8 million workers to build parks, roads, bridges, and public buildings, was tapped to be the secretary of the four-member Ward Production Board. They would execute the purchase orders of supplies bound for Britain. And thanks to the increase in the national defense budget, now some $7 billion, $435 billion in today's money, they had a lot to work with. Still, speed was of the essence. Of course, those opposed to Lend-Lease and or FDR couldn't attack the president directly. Instead, they unleashed their venom on Hopkins. He didn't have the experience, they said. He was too sickly, they said. And that last part was true enough. But Hopkins was determined that his stomach cancer, diagnosed in 1939, would not stop him from helping the president and his now close friend. But back in January of 1941, FDR, who believed Lend-Lease would pass soon, decided he needed to know more about Churchill. After all, all this political fighting over Lend-Lease had been for the British, and Churchill was now the Prime Minister. What kind of man was he, really? Was he a fighter? Would he continue the Battle of the Atlantic, despite the heavy losses? Would he keep sending up the pilots of the Royal Air Force, though many had not returned from their battles, over the skies of southeast Britain? Would Churchill continue to lead his country, resist the Nazis, if they landed an invasion force on the beaches of Brighton, or elsewhere along the coast. FDR needed to know who he was dealing with. So, in January, he decided to send Hopkins over to assess the British Bulldog and find out exactly what they needed to stay in the fight. It took Hopkins five days to reach London. Taking off from New York's LaGuardia Terminal, he landed in Newfoundland and then on to Lisbon. From there he reached the country of his destination. But before meeting with Churchill, who had no idea who this guy was, Hopkins met with CBS London chief Edward R. Murrow. They spent five hours together with Murrow doing most of the talking. The reporter convinced FDR's man that the British would resist, and they had the perfect leader for this. Having his attitude lifted, Hopkins met with the Prime Minister. Churchill's first response to being informed that Harry Hopkins was coming to meet him was, Who? Then he was told of the man's New Deal works. So when they finally met, Churchill assumed Hopkins was here to investigate the country's social conditions during the war, as in perhaps to better prepare the Americans if war came to them. With this in mind, Churchill started rattling off various programs to help the poor during the Blitz. But before too long, the American, from a farming background, who didn't give spit for power or blue bloods, interrupted by saying, Mr. Churchill, I don't give a damn about your cottagers. I'm over here to find out how we can help you beat this fellow Hitler. The Prime Minister was taken aback by the interruption and by the man's directness. 
But after a few seconds of catching up, the Prime Minister's eyes lit up. They then got to work. When he got back to his hotel, Hopkins wrote to the President, answering one of FDR's main questions. Churchill is the government, in every sense of the word. Hopkins went on to say that the Prime Minister was not only controlling the country's grand strategy, but also the tactical pursuit of its goals. This is what the President had been hoping for. Len Lease could now be focused and made efficient by dealing with this one person. And this is just too good to pass up. As Hopkins stayed a few weeks with Churchill, the Prime Minister threw a banquet in the Americans' honor. The British leader made many fine speeches about British principles in wartime. Then it was Hopkins' turn to speak. The sickly, gaunt man stood up and said, Mr. Prime Minister, I don't think the President will give a damn for all that. The room went quiet. You see, we're only interested in beating that son of a bitch in Berlin. Churchill later told Hopkins that he would have him knighted. His title would be Lord Root of the Matter. Near the end of his six-week tour, Hopkins wrote to FDR, This island needs our help now with everything we can give them, and soon. For the battering continues, and Hitler does not wait for Congress. Which was true enough, but many Americans still wondered if their leader would take them into the war, and equally important, would it be in time to save Britain? For if not, the United States could end up fighting Nazi Germany alone. In March, just after Lend-Lease was passed, the President told the people that the country had just gone through a great debate, and it was finally settled, and decided by the American people themselves. The United States, the arsenal of democracy, is going to play its full part. He added that it was time to put aside all personal differences until victory is won. Going back to the questions the Americans were asking themselves, would the president take us into war, and would it be in time to save the British, the citizens just might have gotten their answer. For those of you whose job it is to hire, I'm about to make your life a lot easier. Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? I've recently had to hire some tech help for my World War II website, and honestly, finding the right person has been a nightmare. I know what I need, but finding the person with the right skills leaves me with a headache. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post their jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com 
slash world war. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash world war. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash world war. Berlin's response to all this was a cool reserve. An official statement went, the election outcome was expected by us, and we have reckoned with it for a long time. Again, that was the face put to the world stage. Privately, Hitler and his general staff translated recent events in the United States to mean the war would be prolonged. As such, Hitler's generals prepared for that long war. Still, it would not hurt to attempt to make the American population rethink their president's latest moves. Nazi Germany put out a statement that read, The German Armed Forces High Command regarded Lend-Lease as a declaration of war on Germany. We now know what and against whom we are fighting, and the final struggle has begun. By now, Hitler was used to quick strikes and quicker victories, but that wasn't happening against the British. And he still possessed himself enough to know that until Germany dominated the enemy's southern coast and the English Channel, any invasion attempt would be foolhardy. But the German general staff got a window into Hitler's thinking when he told them, Germany was relatively safe within its European fortress, which allows us the ability to wage war against Britain indefinitely. But now, as the Americans were gearing up for war, they would be a real threat by 1942. No, Britain had to be removed as a German adversary. Britain is sustained in her struggle by hopes placed in the United States and Russia. Russia, the generals were probably asking themselves, where did that come from? After all, there was a non-aggression pact between the two that would last a few more years. But Hitler explained further, Churchill was hoping to set Russian strength in motion against us. However, if the Russian threat were non-existent, not only would that be Britain's last hope on the European mainland, but with a much weakened Russia, Japan would then be free to harass and keep busy the Americans. So all Hitler needed was one more quick victory in the East. Thus the order to prepare for Operation Barbarossa was given. Berlin began to transfer men and their war machines away from France's coast and towards the border with Stalin's Soviet Union. Back in the United States, though Lend-Lease had passed, at least half the country still did not want to get into the war. Aiding Britain was one thing, but if it led to the United States' entry into the war, most Americans weren't interested. The isolationists and the interventionists continued their war of words. Those words were becoming more nasty as the war worsened for the British. Not unexpectedly, fights broke out at the various anti- or pro-interventionist rallies. Ironically, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. would begin to distance himself from the America First movement. He had not changed his mind about staying out of Europe's war, but the rising anti-Semitism of the movement made him uncomfortable. 
He wrote to a friend of the intolerance that is seething below the surface here in this country. Fuel was being added to this fire. He continued, There is nothing so infectious as intolerance. Once you start it, God knows where it finishes. So the Oyster Bay Roosevelts pulled themselves back into the privacy of their own lives. Franklin's Hyde Park Roosevelts had won, for now. But Theodore Roosevelt's part in this saga was not over. After officially quitting the American First organization, he was called up for reserve duty by the United States Army. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt Jr., with his bum knee and undiagnosed heart disease, was overjoyed at the prospect of defending his country. He still didn't agree with his cousin, but he would make his father proud by defending their country. Besides Ted Roosevelt, others began to pull away from the America First rallies. Lend-Lease clearly put America on an eventual war footing with Nazi Germany. And, as that was the case, patriotism, in whatever form, began to overawe most of the country's citizens. This was a nation of doers, even if the task was onerous. But FDR would not take his country into war on his own. Either Germany had to cross the line, or the majority of Americans had to demand it. True, he believed that only if the United States entered the war would the Axis then lose. But leading the charge without knowing the minds of the majority behind him was not a risk he would take. With Lend-Lease an established fact, supplies of all kinds were on their way to Britain. However, this flow wasn't always one way. London, i.e. Churchill, was still obsessed with bringing the United States into the war, openly, as was FDR. But the Prime Minister needed it to happen soonest. So, British war technology, which was certainly more advanced than America's in 1941, was sent across the Atlantic. Back in September of 1940, during the height of the Battle of Britain, Sir Henry Tizard, chief scientific advisor to the Air Ministry, was sent to the United States to not only share advanced military technology, but to request that the Americans take over the production of some of the items that were currently beyond Britain's ability. With Tizard were the plans and some prototypes of high-performance engines, bomb fuses, and most important of all, a high-power microwave tube called a cavity magnetron. It was the heart of a miniaturized radar system, small enough to be placed in planes and ships for locating submarines and aircraft. The British wanted the Americans not only to mass-produce it, but to improve upon it. Henry Stimson, the U.S. War Secretary, said at the time, we were getting infinitely more from the British than we could give them in terms of technology. But that had been Churchill's plan all along, and FDR happily went along with it. Yet one more piece of information was shared, or rather given, to the United States, and it would one day affect the Japanese Empire, though most of those involved were only focused on Nazi Germany and Europe. Harry Hopkins, besides his many other duties, 
formal and informal, helped establish the National Defense Research Committee. Its mandate was to develop scientific research with military applications. Its head, Vannevar Bush, formerly of the Carnegie Institute of Washington, along with his colleague James Conant, received from Britain's Military Application of Uranium Detonation Committee a study of developing an atomic weapon. Specifically, the report dealt with uranium-235, which, if purified enough, could be used to energize a nuclear chain reaction. Of course, there is a vast distance between theory and application, but if it could be done, it would give the Allies a tremendous advantage. And at the moment, the British were focused on staving off the German Luftwaffe. This needed to be an American project. In early December '41, Bush presented his findings of the atomic research to FDR and a few select others. When his report was over, the room was heavy with silence. Stimson would whisper, a most terrible thing. Yet years later, he would be one of those who recommended its use against Japan. It seemed as if 1941 would end with the American people still firmly opposed to entering the war, though openly hoping the British would win. Yet FDR had already taken steps, as most effective leaders do, to ensure that the United States would be ready to work with the Allies if war was joined. Back in January, the President ordered his military staff planners to begin working with their counterparts in Canada and Britain on a joint overall strategy to defeat Berlin and Rome. Problem was, the American military had had no contact with these other bodies since 1917. Such was America's self-imposed isolation after the Great War. Still, the President had his planning chairman, Admiral Betty Stark, get to work, and he made it clear the foreigners were to be called associates. The word allies was never to be used. After all, words have meaning, and Roosevelt did not want anyone to assume anything. This was a man who always kept his options open. Within two months, Betty Stark put before his president the Anglo-American Grand Strategy, ABC-1. ABC-1 called for a sustained air offensive against German military power, which again shows Hitler was right not to launch an invasion of Britain without first controlling the skies. Then Rome had to be separated from Berlin politically and militarily. Furthermore, European resistance fighters of whatever nationality would be supported as fully as possible. During such time, forces would be built up in Britain, and the very edges of German-held territory were to be tested and weakened, until such time that a large force would be landed in Europe, which would then start an offensive towards Berlin. This would pretty much remain the Allies' attack philosophy. During the late winter and early spring of 1941, FDR stayed in bed most days. He claimed to be suffering from the flu and or a cold. Yet when visitors came, he seemed in good health and had a positive attitude. Finally, Admiral Betty Stark asked him about this 
strange juxtaposition. FDR replied, When I don't know how to move, I stay put. Stark wondered if that statement had a double meaning. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, um, for those of you who have been with me since the beginning, and I honestly can't remember when that is, June is some year, uh, five or six years ago, something like that, um, I've been doing the World War II podcast. And for those of you who listen to me with Cameron Riley uh, doing the other podcasts, we have been doing that for about three and a half years. Um, and on a side note, you should check out Cameron Riley's Napoleon Bonaparte uh, podcast that I listened to years ago. That was the very first one I tried. It is absolutely amazing. You will learn everything you need to know about Napoleon. But anyway, so between my full-time job, the World War II podcast, the membership episodes that come along with this, and doing the uh, podcast with Cameron, my life has pretty much stopped in the last year or two. And um Rightly so. The wife has pretty much uh, said it's time to uh, fish or cut bait. So this is not a threat in any way, shape, or form. But um, there has come an opportunity for me to do podcasting full-time. So um, I'm seriously considering it, but obviously I would uh, need your help um, as much as as you're able to. Um, I have to make this decision rather soon, probably in the next four to five weeks. Um, and if I do pursue podcasting full time, which is obviously very scary, um, but there's just so much I want to do. I haven't lost my enthusiasm for the story of World War II. I'm still excited about it. I want to cover everything. I want to expand what I'm covering. I want to um, I want to go into the personalities in the Pacific and more of those uh, that are in Europe. Uh, I want to I literally have a stack of books on my desk that people that want to be interviewed. I have a file in my email of other authors who want to be interviewed, but I literally don't have time to read all these books and do this and keep the main narrative of World War II going. And I want to, and I even want to bring back the Churchill bio just because I enjoyed that so much. So there's so much I want to cover. I want to go into the Nuremberg trials. I want to go back and touch on what's happening in these occupied countries, see what's going on there and what happens to them after the war country by country. This could literally take me, sorry, I know I use the word literally too much. This could take me another 10 years, which I don't know if that scares you or not. But anyway, so this is what I'm, I'm pretty much putting before you. If you've ever thought about supporting the show, uh, now would be a really good time to do it to see if it is feasible for me. If you would like to make a donation, that would be fine. Uh, but to be honest with you, I'd rather have, if you wanted to support the show, I'd rather have you sign up for membership because that way you actually get something more for your money. You get two extra episodes. And for those of you who um, don't know about the membership episodes, I do two extra episodes a month, you know, with some backstories of World War II or some side stories, something where I can go into it and, and um, flesh it out a little bit more that would just slow down the main narrative of, of the podcast. So this is something that I'm very seriously considering. Um, I'm just asking for your help. I, I don't need, I'm not asking for someone to give me a thousand dollars or whatever. It doesn't work that way. There's so many listeners out there that if everybody just uh, if a lot of people just signed up for membership or made a donation every once in a while, this is something I could really do. And I would like to uh, turn it into something more than just what it is. I want to go to different sites. I want to be able to do video episodes and, and just expand it a lot. I would like to talk to some vets, uh, veterans, interview them and put, get them on the show. There's So what I want to do 
is so f- so much more than what I'm currently doing just by putting out these episodes, like you know, anywhere from two to four episodes a month. So um, I know a lot of you probably listen to a lot of different podcasts. I certainly do. I'm not asking for anything amazing. Just if you ever considered supporting the show, now would be a good time so I can uh, kind of gauge what it would be coming in so I could, uh, you know, run it by the wife because obviously at the end of the day, she's the one who's going to make this decision. But again, this is something, um, I know this is out of the blue. And for those of you who've been with me, you've probably noticed the slowdown in my output. That's just because there's just so much going on with my life with a full-time job and the other podcasts and stuff like that. I'm just trying to narrow it down and do a better job because no matter what I do on the side with, with Cameron and I, and I love the podcast that we do world war two, this podcast will always be my baby. I will never give it up. Um, I just have to find a way to structure my life so I can be there for everybody at the same time. So again, if it's at all possible, please support this show, um, in any way that you possibly can. And, um, I'll let you know what I'm going to decide in the, probably in the next month or so. But just, um, I thank you for your time. I thank you for listening. There is nothing more valuable or precious than someone's time. And for those of you that listen to this, going to work or whatever, I absolutely appreciate it. Anything you could do to help, I would really like to take this chance. I would really like to just go out there and just try to deliver, in some ways, to the best of my ability, the ultimate World War II experience. And that's just something I need your help with. So if you... um have any questions or concerns, write me at wwiipodcast uh, at gmail.com. You can go to the website, wwiipodcast.net. You can see about membership. You can um, you can look and maybe purchase a mug, make a donation. If you wanted to use PayPal, you can just go directly to PayPal, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Anything that you could help with, I would truly appreciate. And I just want to take this to a much greater level and really just deliver, hopefully uh, convey to the best of my ability, the amazing story that is World War II. That's something that that has obsessed me since I've been 10 years old. And I just want to do a much better job, but now I want to actually make it into my job. So please consider it. And as always, I thank you for your time and I thank you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.